Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knudsen, and Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Act for a Post-Consumer World. Our guest this week is Dow Orion, author of a provocative new book, Beyond the War on Invasive Species, a Permaculture Approach to Ecosystem Restoration. Dow is a permaculture designer, teacher, homesteader, and mother living in the southern Willamette Valley of Oregon. She teaches permaculture design at Oregon State University and at Aprovecho, a 40-acre nonprofit sustainable living educational organization. She holds a degree in agroecology and sustainable agriculture from UC Santa Cruz. And apologies for some audio troubles in the second half of the show. We had a little trouble with our phone line, and uh, Dow had to move to a room with some birds in the background, which I think is actually kind of pleasant, but uh, apologies for that. And now, our conversation with Dow Orion. And welcome, Dow, to the Root Simple Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, yeah welcome, Dow. Okay. Well, we have about three hours worth of questions yes. in an hour because this is a really interesting topic. So let's talk about origins. I thought maybe a good place to start would be the story of what happened when you were hired as a botanist uh, to work on habitat restoration in Willamette County. Uh, what was the site like that you were dealing with, and uh, what was the approach being taken there? Well, um, yeah, several years ago, I was hired as a botanist. It's actually it was Lane County in the Willamette Valley, Oregon, oh, okay. and um, I had come to restoration as with a background in organic agriculture and permaculture design, and so thought that taking a job in kind of a different field would be an interesting experience. And um, what I found pretty much immediately upon going out to the main job site where I worked, uh, which was a 60-acre wetland mitigation project, was that the the scope of the work uh, was pretty much focused on the eradication of invasives um, with the use of herbicide. Uh, And in this case, it was uh, Roundup or glyphosate was the main ingredient in the herbicides that had been used. Um, and that were continuing to be used on the site in order, the idea was that um, the site needed to be clear of invasive species uh, by within five years. Otherwise, you know, a whole series of regulatory um, problems would come up for the county um, that I was working with. And so it was, it was really interesting for me as a kind of holistic uh, land manager just to consider what um, was being done there, uh, what different approaches people had taken in the conception of how to uh, approach the restoration project and also carry it out. I was appalled, really. And the more that I got into interviewing people and just kind of understanding the scope of how people were thinking about invasive species in the wider restoration community, I realized that there hadn't really been much discussion of understanding what they might be doing or representing in an ecosystem. 
And I felt that kind of an organic or holistically informed approach based on research uh, would be really useful to bring to the table. Um, Also because in in the course of researching my book, I found that uh, to a large degree, a lot of the discussion about invasive species had been shaped by uh, the pesticide industry who was benefiting by creating this new market uh, for selling their products, mostly herbicide, uh, for dealing with invasive plants. And so um, I knew kind of the scope of the pesticide industry's influence in agriculture, you know, coming to this as an organic farmer, uh, where, you know, the organic farming movement had established many different examples and, you know, just uh, ways of thinking about growing food that didn't include the use of pesticides. Um, so I figured that we could think about ecosystem restoration in the same way, and I set out to kind of lay out some ways of thinking about that and principles um, that could be applied that kind of had crossover with the organic farming and permaculture world. So that's that was my hope and kind of <laughs> my wish in, in writing the book. Let's, let's talk a little bit so, yeah, about um, oh, what ahead. you call uh, the nuclear option in the book, which is you, you describe this, you know, you have to kind of wipe the slate clean. Now, what, what do you think is wrong with these herbicides from a you know, biological perspective? For instance, uh, well, Roundup is probably the one people are most familiar with, but, but also 2,4-D. What are wrong with uh-huh. these chemicals? Why, sh- why shouldn't we or should we use them? Well, it's... it's interesting thinking about uh, Roundup in particular in the context of restoration and even in agriculture, the marketing around uh, that particular product as safe and effective has been very thorough. I've heard many different people tell me that, you know, Roundup is completely benign um, or that's what they believe. But to me, in looking deeper at the evidence uh, that's coming out about uh, glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, um, tells me that there's a lot that to potentially be concerned about. And uh, one of the things that I found during the course of my research was that uh, the pesticide registration and toxicity testing that's required to bring a pesticide or anything, uh, an herbicide, including glyphosate, to market is lacking on, in a lot of ways in terms of telling us what's really going on ecologically and toxicity-wise in terms of human exposure. Glyphosate is a particularly interesting molecule. Uh, One of the reasons that it's said to be benign for humans and mammals uh, is because it acts on this particular enzymatic pathway called the shikamati pathway, which is used by plants and bacteria uh, to metabolize Uh, various enzymes. Basically, glyphosate shuts that down and renders a plant's immune system uh, non-functional. So by doing that, glyphosate itself doesn't kill the plant, but it makes it susceptible to pathogens that are already present in the soil. So, you know, you spray Roundup on something and it takes a few weeks for it to die because essentially all the diseases and uh, things that are already in the soil where it's growing get into the plant, and that, that's what kills it. Oh, um, I didn't know that. That's kind to of me, gross. that was pretty disturbing <laughs> <laughs> to learn about, uh, largely because the shikamati pathway, as I mentioned, is used by plants and bacteria, and bacteria are 
one of the foundations of our own mammalian human immune system. You know, we talk about the microbiome and our gut flora. You know, people mm-hmm. are becoming really interested in taking probiotics, etc. Um, well, this uh, the idea that Roundup doesn't and glyphosate doesn't affect uh, us because we have a different metabolism isn't really true because indeed our whole immune system is based on bacteria. Mm. And this hasn't been part of toxicity testing for glyphosate or any other molecule, any other pesticide. Basically what they're looking for, what the EPA is analyzing is um, acute and somewhat long-term carcinogenic effects. So they do a two-year study on rats to determine whether a molecule is potentially carcinogenic, uh, but they're not looking at digestive disruption or immune system disruption or anything like that. So there have been a couple of studies that have come out in animals that have to do with um, the effects of eating glyphosate residues in food, particularly, you know, because people are starting to be concerned about, well, not starting to, but people are concerned about Roundup-ready corn and soy being kind of ubiquitous in the food system. A lot of these crops are sprayed nine or ten times with Roundup. Hmm. And people are finding when they're looking at animals that indeed the bacterial populations uh, in their guts, particularly chickens and cows that have been studied, are disrupted. And beneficial bacteria like lactobacillus and uh, bifidobacterium are killed by glyphosate and pathogenic bacteria like botulism, uh, tetanus, salmonella are actually strengthened or, you know, they have more of a, an ability to thrive because the beneficial bacteria have been killed. And Monsanto actually patented glyphosate as an antibiotic in 2010. So uh, they know <laughs> that it has this uh, uh, potential to kill bacteria, and that's... Uh, what they do. Uh, And so when it gets into the soil, whether it's in an agricultural context or uh, in a restoration context, it definitely is having the potential to uh, disrupt the digestive system, the immune system of uh, animals that eat things that have come in contact with it. And that's just one, (laughs) one herbicide. Um, So there's some, there's some pretty major uh, issues associated with the use of Roundup in restoration. You know, a lot of these uh, practices that are taking place are in parks, in natural areas, forests, um, you know, schools even, where people don't necessarily think that they're coming in contact with pesticides. Uh, you know, you, you go to a park and you let your kids just play around. Well, there's probably maybe... 50 parks in the U.S. that I know of that don't use any herbicides. Um, for the most part, you know, they're being sprayed on at some point, and there's not uh, a lot of notification. Uh, unless you really know what you're looking at, it's kind of hard to tell what's been sprayed. Now that I know what things look like that have been sprayed, I can see it on the ground, like along roadsides or at parks, you know, or on the bases of trees. But... I think a vast majority of people don't really know what they're looking at when they go, you know, walking, hiking on a trail or playing at the park or something like that. So it's a big uh, issue. And of course, we're encouraged to use these products in our own homes, too. 
you know, right. and even if, it, right. you know, you know, say uh, it, it's part of the standard language when people are converting their yards to natives, you know, um, it's like, there's all, always this sort of text that's like, well, you know, nobody likes Roundup, but, you know, you know, you're going to have to hit a few things with Roundup to get a clean uh -huh. slate, you know, like, like the crabgrass or, or the Bermuda grass, like the really, the really tough ones, you know, you're just going to have to use a little Roundup, you know, like it's this necessary evil. We got to do it, though. We got to do it. And the people who are saying this, whether on the small scale, like in the in your yard or, or for the major uh, restoration project, um, like a wetland or something, these are people, these are environmentalists. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's something you... So you, they're people who care right. about these issues, yeah. and yet they still feel like that, that, like that level of intervention is necessary. What makes it so that these invasive species are so horrible that we have to resort to carcinogens to, to get rid of them? Well, that's an interesting thing that I, you know, as I came into this and started interviewing more people, I was really trying to get to the bottom of what was making people who care so deeply about ecological restoration feel like herbicides were not only like a last resort, but like a first resort. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like this is how you have to deal with these things. And it was interesting because I feel like there's a, because the paradigm of invasive species has largely been crafted by pesticide manufacturers. And at, at the beginning, I would say, uh, Monsanto had an employee on its payroll that helped start the first uh, California Exotic Pest Plant Council, mm -hmm. which later became the California Invasive Plant Council. Um, and a lot of these manufacturers are still a large part of funding research around uh, weed science and invasive species management. So there's there's some big players, you know, in this this picture of the the ideology um, that hasn't really been challenged yet. And I feel like you know what people see on the ground, and I see it too. You know, there's uh, there's changes going on in ecosystems, and a lot of people are concerned about that. And it's totally valid, you know, and it's right. There are things happening. There's changes in species composition uh, going on all over the world. Do you mean because of climate change? Well, climate or change is, of our... is one factor. Also, just uh, what I see is changes in land use being mm -hmm. um, kind of the major factor. Um, and that's really not a, as much a part of the discussion in uh, restoration, although, you know, people do understand that the way that we are have designed our society and our food production, uh, fiber production, etc., does change ecosystem function. Um, but in a lot of cases, restoration isn't really seeking to address the larger factors that are contributing to the ability of invasive species to uh, proliferate in the way that they do. Uh, in certain contexts. And so, you know, it's taking the approach of using pesticides to manage something of that scale and of that nature uh, is just not going to work long term unless, you know, if you're not going to be addressing the fundamental underpinnings of what's allowing for the proliferation, um, you're not going to be getting anywhere. And it's the same in conventional agriculture you know, the difference between conventional and organic where 
conventional, you're gr- trying to grow plants and anything that's coming in and competing with the plant, whether it's a another plant, which you say is a weed, or an insect that feeds on the plant, which you call a pest, the answer is spray those things because they're the problem. Uh, rather than looking at the whole picture of the agroecosystem as a, a whole and seeking to identify, well, you know, if there's pest pressure, then maybe uh, the plants that I'm trying to grow are stressed and maybe I should focus on building the soil, uh, building up the mineral profile, the organic matter content, because research has shown that plants that are stressed uh, actually attract more herbivorous insects. You know, there's a feedback loop there where, you know, you're actually attracting the pests to come and eat your plants if you're your plants are not healthy. Mm-hmm. So when you start to kind of apply some of those concepts on a wider scale, you can see that invasive species are just a manifestation of what is happening in the, the larger ecosystem, what has happened historically, um, and also get a picture of where the, the ecosystem is headed. Um, it's like a, a picture in time of a symptom you know, that we can work to address in a different way. And herbicide isn't going to do anything in long term, and it may even be causing more harm in, in some of the ways that we've talked about. Well, the, for me, the, the use of these herbicides brings up this very big question, which is, is what, what the philosopher Foucault called the unthoughts, which are the kind of assumptions that everyone's making that they're not actually thinking about. So when we uh-huh. look at these landscapes, like the one that you were you began the book with, there's this question of what are we trying to do? And it seems like there isn't a lot of thought about that. It's just like, oh, we're going to wipe the slate clean, and then we're going to set it back to some hypothetical time time which which was better and and that you know the question is that a time before human beings is that a time when native americans were here what is or or is it some sort of idea what 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 are what what do you think you know because when we discuss companies like monsanto i think they have they think that they're doing the right thing somehow yeah. you know i don't think it's i mean maybe greed is part of it but th- there's a there's a vision that they have and i'm not clear what that is or what the goal is and when we look at these landscapes what what do you what do you think <laughs> it's a very big question but. well it's it's really interesting and i really tried to like identify that that reference point and you know some restoration organizations have a more defined uh time frame that they're working towards. Uh, it's usually, you know, the idea of native plant assemblages being pre-contact is pretty, pre, meaning pre-European contact, mm. is pretty well accepted in, you know, the field of ecological restoration. So we're, you know, the movement is towards getting back to then and attempting by all means to recreate ecosystems of the past. A lot of people say, you know, they give the reference time of like 1740 something. In, <laughs> That's in nicely California. random. <laughs> oh, so in Very California. Random. Oh, so it's uh, when the, the first that, you know, uh, missionaries. We even know what an ecosystem looked like at right. that particular date. Like how was it different between 1720 and 1780? Yeah. You know, we don't know. But 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's there's some highly subjective and you know um, idealized uh, kind of visions of recreating what once was. And you know, to me, I I see the value in that that impulse because there is so much that's been lost by the kind of colonial model and the the industrial revolution, you know, the the society that we're living in has completely destroyed a lot of ecosystems. And, you know, the context of that, you know, post-contact was displacing uh, hundreds of thousands of people, indigenous people who had lived in North America in South America and Central America for thousands and thousands of years. And so there's, you know, there's this idea that in restoration now we could like do better in certain landscapes um, and try to bring back some of what has been lost as a result of, you know, this really intense and um, multifaceted process that's been ongoing since contact, uh, you know, Mm. uh, but I don't really think that that's, I think that there's more to it than um, even what's practiced in restoration today, because to a large degree, what people are focusing on is plants. Like if we can just get the plants back and the associated birds and pollinators, then everything's going to be okay. But really, the larger story that I think needs to be brought into the fold is the fact that these plants were uh, agricultural uh, staple crops. They were managed by people. And the native plant assemblages aren't just kind of static features of a landscape, and they should be, continued to be managed by people. That's what made them, um, you know, these robust scenes of beautiful, you know, flowers and the open uh, park-like savannas of oak trees those weren't just there. They were people's gardens that were on a very large scale throughout California, especially. So, you know, taking the people out of that picture is largely, you know, kind of the, fills the wilderness ideology that kind of like drives a lot of the modern environmental movement. But I think there's a real need to reconnect with the the ethno-ecological evidence and you know, the cultural uh, awareness of the fact that there are, there were people involved and there are still people involved in managing these plant resources uh, as agricultural systems. And if we could kind of reconnect with that a little bit, I think we could go really far uh, towards um, not necessarily recreating, but enhancing native plant ecosystems. But we can't take the people out of the equation and that we need to change in our right. perspective. <laughs> Which is, a, of course, your background in permaculture speaks to that because people are part of the, the picture. And that seems to be, when you talk about taking the clock back to 1740, that seems to be the part of the picture that's missing. So you take the clock back to 1740, but, but the Native people were not only managing the landscape, they were using it. Do you see mm-hmm. a future in which you know, we would be 
essentially creating a landscape that provides food and things like that. That's kind of a, when we think of natural area, so-called natural quote unquote areas right now, that's a pretty radical. Yes. We're always, our our new notion of, of, of like wilderness is, is that we should stay Stay away, stay out. out. Like we're, we're bad, leave nature alone to do what she does best. (laughs) But if you, if you truly want to go back to the pre-contact, you know, you're actually looking at a world where there's intense interaction between people and landscape. I mean, I guess our interaction now is intense, but a different kind of intense, (laughs) you know, but we're we're extractive and and perhaps that was a more cooperative model that they were using. But I think there is a prevailing mythology that nature thrives on its own um, and that the Native Americans knew what to do with the wild plants that happened to be growing all by themselves in nature, you know, and, and not so much understanding that the Native Americans were were cultivating specific kinds of plants and that our palette of native plants, no matter what region we're from, is a palette that was chosen by those gardeners. Yeah, and that's that's a huge piece of, you know, really focusing in on how we should best uh, manage native plant and invasive plant communities now. So then the question is, can we garden with invasive plants? Is that right? Can we make them part of our, can we make them part of our garden? Right. What part do they play in, I guess? Well, I mean, yeah, go ahead. I, I think if you, if you understand native plant assemblages as essentially feral gardens, that had been intentionally cultivated for thousands of years um, to a point where probably all of the the species that were in them were useful for something. And then imagine taking away that management by displacing people, by, you know, death, genocide, Mm. disease, et cetera, and then introducing a completely different style of land management uh, you know, about 150 years ago that included uh, different types of grazing animals like sheep and cattle and horses, um, that included a prohibition on fire and in the introduction of annual agriculture and irrigation projects, which is huge in mm. California. All of those changes, the trapping of the beaver, you know, being another huge hydrological change in the Western United States and all throughout North America, but here I think we can feel it especially. All of those changes taking place over the past 150 years have really changed the ecological niches that are available uh, in many ecosystems for plants. And the types of plants that we're seeing that thrive now are a direct result of those niches being available. You know, there's a lot of I think research and discussion about how invasive species are, you know, they're these strong and aggressive and assertive species that come in and displace other things, other species that should be there, quote unquote. <laughs> but there's not a lot of focus on what it is they're coming into. <laughs> and um, you know, is the ground ready for them? Would native species even survive in the types of conditions that are now on the ground, not in 1740? Because <laughs> it's a lot different around here now uh, than it was 250 years ago. And um, so we, in my, you know, my elevator speech about kind of looking at these uh, factors in a more holistic way is, 
are we focusing in on the organism and all the characteristics of how an invasive species is, you know, bad or this or that, how it has these incredible root systems or, you know, there's all this focus in on that. Well, could we look at instead the ecosystem where they thrive and really think about how we can create the conditions that might allow for more diversity uh, to thrive again? What are the kinds of conditions that the native plants that we believe that we desire need? What do they need to thrive? And how can we focus on making that a priority rather than believing that we can get back to some state by removing the invasive species? Um, That's kind of the, in a nutshell, (laughs) um, version. So we talk about some of those invasive species specifically because I think some of the examples you have in your book are really interesting in yeah. terms of, of how um, how they work. Yeah, I mean, it's not a plant, but the I thought your story about the zebra mussels was really interesting. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, zebra mussels are really, that was a really interesting <laughs> research uh, line for me as well. Um, it's something that, all throughout the U.S. people are concerned about, you know, zebra and quagga mussels coming into waterways and taking over. Um, My research into their proliferation in the Great Lakes turned up a lot of um, interesting historical context that I think is really important to understand when we're talking about how to both prevent their accumulation but also to manage them. in the Great Lakes and in North America in general, freshwater mussels are one of the most endangered types, like species groups in the in North America. And I believe 20 of the original 30 native species of freshwater mussels in North America were driven to extinction right around the Industrial Revolution, um, both from over-harvesting Uh, for button making Hmm. and also just the introduction of pollutants into water and also changes in sedimentation from development along uh, lake shores. So, you know, pre-zebra mussel, there's major changes in hydrological systems going on. Now, over the past 20 years or so, in the Great Lakes especially, zebra mussels have come in and I think they can have like 6,000 mussels per square foot. They can just be this incredibly dense uh, colony of these tiny little mussels and they're very sharp and they cut people's feet who are trying to swim in the area. So, um, you know, people are kind of annoyed about them, (laughs) to say the least. Uh, Another story about them is that they also, uh, they attach to hard surfaces, which is different from other types of mussels. Um, So they can attach to things like factory effluent pipes that are buried underground that are uh, discharging wastewater into the lakes uh, and also intake pipes. So, you know, factories that are sucking fresh water in, uh, they have to have people go in there and scrape these mussels out on a weekly basis because they're they're just coating the inside of these giant pipes. So people Um, hate the mussels. Hate, hate, hate. People hate them. (laughs) So there's kind of, you know, some interesting backstory there. Then another 
factor that's come into play is the massive um, pollution in the Great Lakes region, um, which researchers have now found that zebra mussels, each, each mussel can filter a quart of water per day. And what they found inside of them, they, they're actually accumulating uh, PCBs, persistent or- organic pollutants, cadmium, lead, mercury, also, antibiotic-resistant bacteria has been found inside the mussels. So they're essentially taking everything that's inside the water and concentrating it into their body. So basically, if you think about zebra mussels from a wider perspective, all of these things that they're accumulating, they're taking out of the solution of the, the Great Lakes ecosystem. They're burying all of these really bad things, essentially things that are you know, preventing life and sending them down into the bottom of the lake as their bodies decompose. So they're essentially taking a lot of these mined uh, heavy metals and things that we don't really want to have around, um, floating around in the water and allowing them to get buried again, um, you know, which in a sense is kind of the best place for a lot of these things. Um, it would have been better if maybe we didn't uh, pollute the water with them in the first place. But um, from kind of an earth systems perspective, having them buried down in the, the lake bottom sediments is, you know, kind of a, a good solution for what's happening to the Great Lakes in general. So, you know, when we think about zebra mussels, what niche they're filling um, from an ecological perspective, they are kind of the best species that, or the only species perhaps, that could survive in the type of conditions that we've created in the Great Lakes, both by driving other freshwater mussel species to extinction and by massively polluting the lake ecosystem through our kind of industrial uh, fabrication processes uh, that we, you know, rely on in our current society. So they're a response to the conditions that we've created and they're proliferating there for a reason. And they're also doing uh, a job of making the lake over time much more habitable, clean, and non-toxic to life in the future by burying those um, heavy metals and other pollutants in their bodies. So it seems like... The the view we have of these sorts of species is like it's a picture and we have to eliminate them rather than it's a piece of music, a time-based kind of set of transitions in which these muscles are just one of the transitions onto something else, hopefully something better. Is that kind of the way you, you see it, that these are, you know, these species are filling a niche and that the 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 what we're dealing with is a you know, gardening or farming or whatever is a time-based medium, not a, not a, not something that's set in stone in 1740. How do you change that consciousness? How do you, how do you get people to think of things in terms of transitions rather than as, you know, like something that needs to be changed? That's a good question. I feel like people are as, especially as climate change becomes more of a, uh, a well-understood phenomenon for people and people are starting to experience its effects. Uh, Perhaps we're in a better position to start 
understanding the bigger picture earth system kind of time factor that we live in you know where we've been living this planet has been around for four and a half billion years and you know our civilization has come into itself over the past 10,000 or so and now we're seeing that a lot of these things that we kind of relied on or have been based on that climate being stable on you know the the coastlines of the planet being in a particular uh, configuration and as sea level rise continues to happen we're not necessarily going to have those you know port cities etc as viable as they once were so there's a lot of different things I think that are happening that are making people realize that um, we do live on a dynamic and ever-shifting planet and that the things that we choose to do do have an effect on you know the, our ability to survive on the planet long term and so I feel like this awareness is kind of coming um, into being and I'm kind of hopeful that our perception of invasive species can follow along with that as we start to see that they're not just kind of bad actors acting on a static earth ecosystem um, but that they're a part of and a response to the types of pressures that are being experienced by ecosystems all over the world as a response to our development practices and climate change, etc. It seems like, and you address this in your book too, is this, this language of dualism is one of the problems too, that, mm -hmm. there's, that there's good and bad. And uh, another interesting thing you talk about is the kind of, the, the you know, science has a distancing kind of uh, methodology, but then the interpretation of it puts all these words on it, the good and bad, invasive, native. Aggressive. Aggressive, yeah, noxious, all these sorts of, of terms. You want to say something about that, or did I just <laughs> Sure, yeah, I found it really interesting to delve into a lot of the science of invasion ecology, um, because I found that a lot of the findings of study after study after study were uh, you know, they were good science in the sense that they found, you know, a result and it was objective. But the the discussion about what that meant uh, was often lacking in a in the whole system's context. For example, you know, somebody would find a result out about uh, Spartina growing in the uh, Willapa Bay of Washington that they had, had a a more robust root system than the native Spartina species. Um, and so the, the assumption was that because it had this larger root system that it was bad, which wasn't shown by the results of the study. There's no such thing as good or bad when it comes to objective science. Rather, to me, what I think would be more appropriate would be to say, well, okay, so this plant has a larger root system. What does that mean? <laughs> Why? Uh, and what kinds of effects does that have, not as something that's necessarily negative, but could it be understood in a larger context? And I feel like that context um, in invasion ecology is uh, all too often missing. And again, that focus in on the organism, the invasive organism as the kind of causal driver of observed changes in ecosystems. Uh, needs to be abandoned in favor of 
a wider understanding of how that organism is interacting with the ecosystem where it's proliferating. Because if we can kind of clue into ecosystem processes and, you know, understand how we might be able to change and manage those uh, in a better way, then I think we have more of an opportunity to manage land in a way that would create the opportunity for more diverse organisms to thrive again. Yeah, I want to actually talk a little bit about the, that those limits of of intervention too, because I know this is a this is a hugely contentious topic, invasive species, and I I think when I heard you speak, you were clear to say that there were times when you would intervene, and maybe you could talk about some examples of instances in which you would say take out a species that's in a particular place. Sure, I I, I do. A- still quite a bit of invasive species management but um, for example on my farm I have a lot of Himalayan blackberry which is a you know a very fast growing vine um, with a very deep root system and uh, because I have a farm I have a kind of production system while I like the blackberries I want to also grow other things so when I see them growing in an area I don't think oh you know look at that they're just spreading and taking over everything, what it, should, what it tells me is instead that that area is in need of some uh, remediation. So they're co- if I look at them from kind of an objective perspective, they're covering the soil. They have, you know, some pretty robust roots. Um, they're providing nectar. They're providing uh, carbohydrate resources for songbirds in terms in the form of their fruit. So I'm looking at that in the larger picture of the ecosystem, and if I'm deciding to take them out, um, I want to be considering how I can continue to provide those same ecosystem services that they're providing uh, in the, in a different form. So I might um, choose to if I'm if I'm taking them out, uh, think about really improving the soil. Uh, where they were found so that they don't uh, have as much of a place to come back into. Because, uh, again, they're, and every species is just kind of biding time uh, in an ecological sense, holding a place until something else comes along. Succession, ecosystem succession is always working, and no invasive species is going to be in a place for the next, you know, 10,000 years. There's always uh, something else that's coming up behind or uh, as the species, uh, as the soil conditions change and, um, you know, different things are coming in, there's going to be other plants that are more suitable to that environment. So I'm always kind of thinking about the species uh, in multiple ways as I'm making a management plan. And sometimes this can happen in a, in a relatively quick time frame and sometimes it might take a longer time on the patches of blackberry that I've been working with it takes about two seasons with um, pigs rotationally grazing in the roots to dig them out and once that's happened and the pigs have added their manure to the soil the soil has improved to a point where the blackberries don't even come back and I can go in there and plant uh, different species 
that will take the, the place of the blackberries that once grew there. We're getting near the end of our time here, but I want to give you an impossibly ridiculous question now, which is um, <laughs> I want to put you in my dream world. You're in charge okay. of um, L.A. Parks and Recreation here. Uh -huh. And uh, there is a, you know, this is a good example. Though. There's oh. a giant park here called Griffith Park, which is it's in, one of the largest I parks. I think it's the largest, the, quote, na natural quote. park in, in an urban area. But uh -huh. it's... It's one of these parks that everyone perceives as, quote, unquote, a natural space. What L.A. Space, used to look like. <laughs> which I think if I took you there, you would look at it and you'd say this is an abandoned cattle ranch that's uh -huh. you know, been overgrazed 100 years ago and now is abandoned. And now, it, well, now so, it's heavily used as a picnic area and jogging area. So in my perfect world, you're... I put you in charge of it. What what does the what are the sorts of questions you'd ask, and what's the sort of succession planning that you would think about when you take over something like that kind of space? Given that its that its purpose is a park, it's in a in a city area, so that I guess that's its ultimate purpose. But what 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 would your plan look like, and what would you go about? Well, doing? it's kind of interesting because I've been working a bit in, with some urban groups like in Eugene, Oregon, near where I'm from, and also in Portland. And the same kinds of questions have come up, like what should we do with these spaces? And I think that the answer lies in kind of, again, taking the bigger context into perspective. You know, I really think that as climate change intensifies and as, you know, resource scarcity becomes more uh, prescient in all of our lives that we're going to have to be thinking about relocalizing and intensifying our um, kind of land use in in our place, the places where we choose to live. So the idea of parks as these places that we kind of just pass through but don't really have any interaction with in an urban setting, we may have to think about, well, maybe we want to be growing some food there. <laughs> and what would that look like? Because, you know, a city like Los Angeles, although it has a large footprint, you know, in its own urban, in the, or the urban setting, the resource base that all of the citizens that live in that city rely on must be, you know, 25 or 50 times that amount of land that are being used to extract resources to bring into the city so that people can eat and have clothes and toilet paper and all that, you know, everything that people use on a day-to-day -day basis. So, you know, if we can start to kind of shift our perspective a little bit about people's interaction with landscapes and what's appropriate and normal, maybe we could start to think about a place like that as more of a resource for people and more of a, an actively managed space. Maybe it would become a subtropical uh, food forest, arboretum, um, something that people could harvest from and, and manage uh, in conjunction with the city for various yields. Because, you know, one of the things that I found ironic as a, as a farmer and a permaculture practitioner was that in the the restoration context, you know, we're out there like saying, oh, these native species, they're so important and so, so valuable. But then, you know, everybody just goes home and then goes to the co-op or goes to Whole Foods to buy all their food. Mm. And it's like, well, the ecosystems where all of that came from was once native plants too. And, you know, if we're not really focusing in on these plants as valuable parts of our own 
economies, household economies, then there's no, they're not really going to survive. And we need to be thinking about how they can fit into, you know, our current context. Um, and also considering that, you know, maybe if we're able to intensify production in urban settings, how some of the pressure that's on agricultural systems that were once in California, like the San Joaquin Valley was once this incredible wetland mm. ecosystem. If we started taking some of that uh, agricultural production and putting it back in the cities, we could potentially allow parts of the San Joaquin Valley to be wetland again and you know have all the ecosystem services and the uh, biological diversity of that area start to return as it's shifted away from agriculture monoculture agriculture back into um, a more diverse ecosystem that people could also interact with but in potentially a different way it Um, sounds like you're not proposing going back to 1740 exactly but something new and something different is that would you say that's right yeah yeah i think so um you know i think i don't think there's any going back (laughs) but i do think that we have the potential to change the way that we think about land use to allow space for more species to thrive outside of these kind of isolated contexts that are considered restorable, uh, you know, quote unquote, where restoration happens. Because we really need to be thinking about these concepts, the importance of native species, etc., in the production systems that we rely on. You know, I'm in Santa Cruz right now where I'm from and I just drove down to the ecological farming conference and, you know, that whole stretch of road and it's similar, you know, going all the way down to Los Angeles, it's all strawberry production Mm -hmm. and it's just covered with miles and miles of plastic and all of the wetlands are, you know, diverted into ditches and it's running right off into the bay. You know, there's some serious issues in that production model um, that should be a part of the conversation about restoration and preservation of species. But I feel like the focus in a lot of conservation circles is we need to get rid of invasive species. And that's somewhat of a distraction when we're not also talking about the larger context of these major drivers of landscape change and you know the way that we use land in our society. Um, not really making room for other species besides the ones that we're trying to grow and make money off of. Yes, so there's some the big questions. <laughs> yeah, the question is like, what are we willing to do? You know, we we talk about, you know, loving the land and wanting to restore things, but what will we do? What parts of our lifestyle will we change? I think yeah. you talk about that a little bit in terms of the restoration of the Colorado River um, mm-hmm. and the the big problem of the salt cedar um, but you, you were asking in that part, like, well, you know, what, how, how do our Western metropolises run? You know, would we all be willing to switch to composting toilets? Would we start eating, um, perennial desert foods like, um, like prickly pear, which Eric and I do like to eat, <laughs> you know, or gathering mesquite, like, and like you're saying, like, would we be growing these things closer to home and harvesting them here? Would we be willing to do that? Or do we still want to eat strawberries and potatoes? Right. 
you know, so that's, I think that's a question that I see a lot coming up in different, from different writers in different contexts, you know, whether it's about like living with uh, keystone predators, like, yeah, we all want to save the mountain lions and the bears. Do you want them in your backyard? Will you make a wildlife corridor so they can pass through? Like, there are all these questions about how do we relate with nature? And, and I think that that comes down to this, this um, fundamental issue of relationship. You know, we, I think we've been very hands off and, and saying, you know, um, wilderness is something we don't touch, we leave alone. And also agriculture, strangely, is kind of something we don't touch. It's just, you know, um, there's one guy on a thousand acres with a combine, you know, and the rest of us have nothing to do with that. So it sounds to me like we're talking about having a very much more nuanced and relationship-based uh, uh, approach towards towards everything in our lives, you know, whether it's where we live and how we live, how we get our food, how we get our fiber. It all comes down to relationship with plants that I think we've lost over the last well, few hundred years, <laughs> you know, <laughs> depending on who we are. Is there a question that I don't know? I'm okay. I'm grandstanding, <laughs> but I, I I like that question that you that you asked about. Well, maybe the question is, are you hopeful? Because I, you know, I go to public meetings. For instance, I was at one on biodiversity in LA, which Ooh. is one of the most contentious meetings I have ever been at. Just the hatred in the room was just astounding. Are you hopeful for this vision that you have for the future? I am hopeful. Um, I think that. You know, there's part of me that's like, well, you know, nothing's really going to change in, but until it has to. Uh, um, but I think that I think more and more people are becoming aware of the fact that, you know, we have a very, our humans have a very strong presence on the planet and we can direct that in different ways. And I am hopeful that um, we'll have the capacity to figure out how to live more in a right relationship with all of these other species that we depend on and all of these different ways that we probably don't even know. And, you know, that we can conserve biological diversity and enhance it. I, I do, I am, you know, I think we're at a, a tipping point and sometimes, especially having, you know, a young child, I'm, I am concerned. Like I was just on the beach down here in Santa Cruz and you know, there's no seashells. <laughs> and I remember as a kid here, mm. just day after day going down there and there's shells. And, you know, I, we found like two uh, plastic bags full of plastic on the beach, but we didn't find any shells. And so my son's relationship with the beach is going to be much different from my own, you know, only 30 some years ago. Um, and that's intense. <laughs> Yeah. And it really makes me feel that I need to, you know, just be intensifying my efforts to help bring this awareness about um, to a larger and larger audience, you know, that we we have the capacity to shape our our reality in a major way. And we haven't done the best job of that in the past few, several decades, but... Um, I think that we have the ability to do things much differently and, and create abundance in our landscape. Um, now, uh, final question. How can people get your book and get in touch with you? Are you doing any events or classes or uh, do you have a website, all that kind of good stuff? Yeah. Um, 
I am kind of traveling up and down the West Coast quite a bit doing different uh, presentations and events. Um, not sure when this podcast is coming out, but I'm doing something. out on Wednesday. So, uh, yeah, oh. so go ahead and if you got something coming up, let us. I am doing an event in Nevada, in Rough and Ready at the Grange. In uh, just outside of Nevada City on Wednesday evening at seven. But I have, if you go to my website, which is resiliencepermaculture.com, I have all my events listed there. I also have a Facebook page for the book, which is just Beyond the War on Invasive Species. And I have updates on there as well as interesting articles and things that I come across. And let's see, you could get my book pretty much anywhere, your local bookstore. It's also on online on Amazon and um, different uh, like bardsandnoble.com different book online booksellers have it so yeah it's pretty widely available also through the publisher uh, Chelsea Green uh, Green's website you can order it there great well thank you Dow for being on the podcast yes we really enjoyed your book thank you so much for being with us thank you that was Dow Orion her website is resiliencepermaculture.com We'll have a link in the show notes. To leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. You can have our podcasts automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes Store or on Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, please share this podcast in social media. You can support the Root Simple Podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website, which is rootsimple.com. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. (laughs) ¶¶